All right. Hello, everybody. It is that time again. Another exciting, scintillating, awe-inspiring edition of this uh, call-in show of mine that all the experts agree is by far the absolute best show on call-in. And if you don't agree with that expert assessment, well, that makes you a fool. It makes you a dupe. It makes you someone who should be really reevaluating their station in life because there's something deeply wrong with you. Well, the premise, at least initially for this edition, and then if anybody has thoughts that are unrelated or ancillarily related to add, you know, please chime in. But my uh, my initial sort of prompt here is based at least in part on having a few days ago been in France for the election that concluded actually a week ago today and sort of assessing some of the at least English-speaking commentary thereafter. And one of the themes that was incredibly predictable was that the victory of Macron in France was declared to have been a victory for all who opposed Putin and actually Putin himself had been dealt a decisive blow by that electoral outcome because his allegedly favored candidate, Le Pen, had lost. That was one of the major framings, one of the primary ways in which the election outcome was framed in English-speaking media, as far as I could see, name, uh, especially the U.S. And on top of that, you know, so it was, number one, Le Pen was pro-Putin, and then number two, she was far right. And I did a substack. um I think it was on Tuesday of last week where I just <laughs> collected some of the examples of these, this robotic repetition of the description of Le Pen as far right. Now, I'm not denying that Le Pen has some views which could be reasonably characterized as far right. But this kind of rote application of a particular label in like every headline or every subheadline <laughs> – that related to the election. And meanwhile, the ideology of Macron was apparently some deep mystery where he didn't even have an ideology and therefore most of these English-speaking outlets didn't even attempt to ascribe him with one. Um, that was sort of a curious dynamic. Um, but you know, they always went out of their way to just make sure that everybody who knew uh, even just a tiny bit about the French election, would know for one thing that Le Pen, the challenger, was far right. And so basically, if you're like most Americans, you don't have a, a deep familiarity with the intricacies of French politics or even about this particular French election, if you glance at the news headlines last uh, week, and then then all you would know was that the incumbent, you know, valiantly fended off his far right competitor. Uh, 
So those, those basically, as far as I could see, were the two prongs of the dominant narrative regarding the French election in the quote-unquote West, right? And another interesting theory popped up, and this, I think, was best or most um, straightforwardly expressed by this pundit-slash-journalist uh, Michael Weiss, who has really rose in prominence since he first burst onto the scene maybe uh, 10 or so years ago as one of the number one agitators for regime change in Syria. So he would he wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs in August of 2013, Foreign Affairs being one of these supposedly august journals of foreign, of foreign policy thought. Um, Wrote, wrote this essay in August of 2013 when the country was debating this idea that the U.S. would launch strikes, airstrikes against uh, Assad because of the chemical, uh, purported chemical attack in, in August of 2013. And Congress was debating it and so on and so forth. And Michael Weiss jumped right in and he wrote a big essay saying, here's why the U.S. should of course, do regime change in Syria. And so you know, he wanted a, maybe a full-scale invasion, or it wasn't clear who cares what exactly he envisioned this would consist of. The point is that's what he was advocating. And, uh, you know, like others, like many colleagues of his in media, um, you can actually be a neocon think tank operative. And I don't say that as a pejorative. That's actually what Michael Weiss was. He was the communications director for the Henry Jackson Society, which is this uh, London-based, but I guess transatlantic um, think tank uh, named after a uh, senator, you know, a former senator from, you know, had his heyday in the 70s who's thought to be this pinnacle or this uh, originator of neoconservative foreign policy thought. And that's the think tank that Michael Weiss worked for and uh, was the, the PR operative for. And uh, But, of course, he's able to just seamlessly transition to something like journalism and uh, is now feted by you know CNN and MSNBC as an expert analyst and reporter on uh, all things Ukraine-Russia. Um, but anyway, so... And you know, I don't even mean to single him out. He's just very emblematic of the kind of sleaze and the kind of pro-war insanity that you can peddle. And you could always be assured that within the U.S. media ecosystem, you can still rise to new heights. Nothing will ever hinder you if what you've done is advocate for new military interventions or new regime change gambits, or even if you were a pure PR operative like Weiss, um, because apparently he's more uh, influential than ever. So, you know, a good, good for him, I guess, but not so good for the health and sanity of uh, society. Uh, but nonetheless, he, he made an interesting point after, after, Macron was declared the victor. He said, and I'm summarizing now because I don't really need to quote him directly because I could only tolerate so much actual exposure to his thoughts, but I guarantee you that I'm giving a roughly accurate 
description of what he said. He said, now that Macron has won, the pressure's off domestically and very well might want to escalate French military involvement in the war. And of course, Weiss said this excitedly, like he expressed hope that Macron would escalate France's military involvement in the war in Ukraine against Russia. Um, and you know, so my thought upon seeing that was, that's interesting. So now that he's freed up from, so what's being at least suggested here is that now that Macron is freed up from the pressures of having to appeal to the actual French electorate or appeal to ordinary voters, uh, now he can go right ahead and do what he apparently wouldn't do if he was still trying to appeal to French voters and escalate French military involvement in the war. That's interesting. It's interesting that a politician or a leader of any kind would, at least per this framework that Weiss suggested, would be bucking domestic pressures by escalating the war. So there's not this grassroots demand to escalate French involvement in the war. It's something that Macron could now do that he's unshackled from this need to actually tailor an appealing uh, platform to the French electorate. Uh, and you know, sure enough, maybe you can guess what has happened in the meantime since the election last week, but I guess I'll just read to you the headline from RFI, which is a uh, public uh, radio broadcaster, the public radio broadcaster of France. Macron pledges more French arms and aid in Ukraine in phone call with Zelensky. So I got to hand it, and this was from yesterday, Saturday. So I got to hand it to Weiss, and I got to hand it to his other neocon uh, pundit colleagues who, despite their sleaze and corruption and uh, bloodthirst, uh, managed to ascend through the ranks of American media. Uh, I got to hand it to them. Sometimes they do call it right in that they can uh, see things that maybe some of us who aren't disposed toward constantly cheerleading military escalation uh, may not be always as attuned to, which is that Macron did uh, follow through on what Weiss had suggested would be the case and, and, and uh, pledged an escalation in arms shipments to, to Ukraine. So bang on, Weiss. And it got me uh, thinking. Uh, so, so now, basically, step back for a second, right? The supposed far right, hor horrifying, uh, nightmarish candidate is defeated, and the consequence of the defeat of the quote far right is escalation in the war. <laughs> so now we have this bizarre position. We have this bizarre circumstance where being far right is more and more depicted as like the countervailing uh, concept to the concept of the pro-war position, right? 
or, or in other words, <clears throat> to be far right now is to <laughs> reject escalation of this current uh, war. Uh, and at least in certain circumstances, at least in terms of this opportunistic portrayal of different candidates or different political factions who challenge different incumbents and whatever. Um, it's sort of odd because at least when I came of age, which would have been in the early 2000s, to be far right was to be at least in the popular conception and based on my recollection, the, the, the and I think this is probably largely true, at least um, you know, there are always some exceptions around the margins, but generally speaking – if you were considered far right in the early 2000s is that you were even uh, intensely militaristic. You were intensely pro-war. You loved projecting military power all over the world, right? You were patriotic and jingoistic and crude about it. And you loved demonizing foreign enemies, right? That was basically what it meant to be far right, at least in terms of a foreign policy perspective. And now it's and apparently the total opposite where the far right is uh, treated as the, the the biggest obstacle for a fuller scale intervention on the order that some of the more kind of i guess say centrists or liberals or mainstream conservatives would would like um and uh that's a real shift because I think it also plays into why lots of people, even if they may have reservations about the wisdom of escalating the war, are highly reluctant to express that view because it can mean that they get automatically lumped in with this alleged far-right Kremlin you know, disinformation nexus because all we ever hear about is that these uh, malicious far-right and uh, Russian-backed forces are always kind of joining together to uh, peddle anti-war messaging. And so it's not tenable for a lot of people, at least in terms of how they could have their reputation put at risk, to uh, be viewed as in any way in league with those forces. Um, hence the total negation, at least in the U.S., of anything that even resembles any kind of anti-war uh, movement. Um, the House of Representatives this past week, you might have seen, and it just it really does sort of boggle the mind that this hasn't gotten hardly any attention, <clears throat> or at least the implications of it haven't been really even considered, apparently. But the House passed this revival of the Lend-Lease program, which was the program that the U.S. government launched in 1941 originally to supply arms and material to first to Great Britain, but then to uh, other countries over the course of World War II prior to the U.S. entry into World War II in, in uh, that December. 
And uh, it was you know, a prelude or a precursor to full U.S. entry into the war. And uh, now you have Congress near unanimously. Remember, the Senate did pass the bill unanimously. Everybody from Bernie Sanders to Rand Paul supported the Senate version of this bill a few weeks ago. And uh, then just a few days ago, the House also passed the bill with just 10 members of the House voting against it. And they were all Republicans who voted against it. Zero Democrats voted against it, right? So, so no, AOC did not vote against it. Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Katie Porter, uh, Ro Khanna, whoever your favorite quote-unquote progressive Democrat is, none of them opposed this bill. They're all apparently in full support of the revival of the policy mechanism after 75 years that uh, led, at least in an indirect sense, to a U.S. the U.S. Enter, entering the previous world war. They don't see or they don't care about, potentially, <laughs> any, uh, any omens that this might present for uh, whether the U.S. may soon be entering into another widened conflict of some kind. Um, because now we have that same mechanism in place. And the weapons aren't just going to Ukraine either. They're going to all throughout Eastern Europe um, through this lend -le new Lend-Lease uh, ca capacity, which uh, presumably Biden will be officially signing into law very soon. Um, so you know, what would happen if a Democrat did vote against that? Well, they'd be screechingly attacked for siding with the far right. They would be furiously maligned for uh, taking up with this Kremlin network that never gets really defined as anything tangible except that it's this ever-present bogeyman. And it's also bolstered by you know, far-right influence networks. That's what the Democrat would have been accused of uh, bolstering. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a that's an incentive that they really have to be cognizant of as a politician. It doesn't necessarily uh, justify in a moral sense whether they would or would not vote for a particular initiative like this Lend-Lease thing. Um, but it does show you the uh, how stifling the current environment is, and I think it has to do with how far right now has been. I mean, or the term far right has been changed into this it's something very different than it w might, would have meant uh, not so long ago. And now it's, it means something like being insufficiently supportive of this rapidly escalating uh, war effort, which, of course, as we've talked about on the show many times, uh, keeps escalating in new and exciting ways pretty much. Every day at the behest of the U.S. and also our valued European partners. Um, now, I guess I should just add for the record that there probably are situations, and I mean, there definitely are, where somebody on the perceived to be on the far left, quote unquote, makes a similar kind of anti-war 
statement or uh, expresses reservation about some element of this escalatory policy, and they can be also be ca- called Putin's shill or stooge um, coming from the left. Uh, but I think more, much more often, at least in a U.S. stamp, uh, in a U.S. context, uh, far right as a category is kind of held up as this uh, obstacle to achieving you know, total unanimity in favor of the war effort, um, and it, it, it's especially been used to kind of uh, ramp up the passions of the le- liberal left in favor of this war effort because it's seen in a way uh, as some kind of means by which to oppose the far right and there- therefore even Trump or something, you know, even though the Republican Party basically you know, across the board is uh, in support of every aspect of this policy and generally criticize Biden only for not going far enough. Yeah, you do have this very minor maybe contingent within the party that maybe isn't is critical actually of some of the more escalatory aspects, but it's not anywhere near significant enough to make any kind of real uh, difference. But nonetheless, far right is a convenient kind of uh, specter for liberals to always have looming overhead everything so they can enforce consensus within their own ranks. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it, is, it is interesting how these terms evolve over the years. I guess that's one benefit of uh, aging uh, is that you can see, uh, you know, within the span of, you know, your uh, adult awareness, consciousness, uh, how uh, these kind of political descriptors or ideological labels really uh, arbitrarily are in flux um, and don't have a fixed meaning and can always be sort of manipulated and contorted um, to uh, to accommodate whatever the latest imperative is. Um, so anyway, that's my, uh, my thought and uh, wondering what others think. All right, let's go to Greg, regular caller. Hello, Greg. Hey, Michael. Um, I was thinking about, you know, what you're saying. I mean, a couple of things, but what you're saying about, you know, um, that one, I can't remember the journalist you were citing, but how you had a hard time reading his stuff. Michael Weiss, yeah. Yeah, I understand that sentiment, but I think it's important to engage with people you disagree with. Even, I mean, even if I feel pretty hopeless in it, because I know so many, I, I mean, I know people who live in your home state of New Jersey who are professors. Um, they're very educated and smart people. But when it comes to this kind of stuff, they're completely blindsided. And they have, I, I feel like they've, they've just bought hook, hook, line and sinker into um, the narrative. And I don't, <laughs> I don't really know how to change people's mind on that, because I think it's just been a concerted effort. Like, that's become reflexive for those kinds of people where they get disgusted by our perspectives that question theirs. So I I think it's important not to fall into that trap. And I mean, I'm not saying you are, but even, you know, by people you don't, (laughs) 
dis- or you don't like or yeah, you know, I was, I was just sort of, I mean, I, perspectives. I, I, mean I, 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 I agree. I was just making a flip comment about how I yeah. found this particular person is who irritating to look up his tweets and give you like a precise rendition of what he but, what he said when I have it kind of seared into my memory. That's all I meant. I, I of course, support and oh, try to engage in myself as often as I can, you know. No, I know. Conversations I know. with people who don't agree with me, as you like probably know. you said, you're going to have yeah. that. You, you would be happy to have that. What was his name? Ling guy on? Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> haven't heard from him. Still haven't heard from him, by the way. Wow. Big surprise. Yeah. yeah. So I just, shocked. I, I feel like they react so reflexively to this. And it's been, I mean, my opinion all in all of this is that it's, this is a bellwether. This is nothing new for the United States. We tend to do this when we're entering kind of like a, a state of, uh, I don't know what to call it, but where I guess the national security is viewed as of top importance. So <laughs> enemies have to be found within the state to make sure there's nothing questioning that like narrative. Like you're talking about that new lady, uh, what's her name? Um, she's got like that Polish or I don't know. She has that. She has that name. I can't. Yeah, remember. the new disinformation the the czar, whatever. Song. At uh, yeah, at, at the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, I don't. I don't know her. I forget her name as well off the top of my head. But something like that. But, I can look it up. You know, you have people like her who you know they're saying on CNN, oh, she's completely unbiased and she has no bias at all. And to me, this is a bellwether for us entering a war state, and it might be a different kind of war state than we're used to. But I imagine it's going to. I mean, I imagine we're going to see the, U- the U.S. economy starting to produce a lot more arms and material for um, for combat and stuff like that. Like the Ukrainians were asking for like what, like 500 javelins a, a day or something like that or or a week. I don't remember if it was a day or a week. And we only produce a thousand in a year, <laughs> which is a not that doesn't work. And I think our stockpiles are one third of we've gone through about one third of them, if not more. And I think on the wider scale, it's interesting to think about this in terms of you were talking about how, you know, we uh, enacted the, the, uh, the lease, the lend lease act, which is really funny because it also supported the Soviet union as well, which was not, you know, when, when Roosevelt did it, he said, oh, it's an arsenal of democracy. And I don't know if I would have called the Soviet Union a democracy when we were um, supporting them. So not to say that it wasn't the right thing to do, but um, they also you also have to remember we enacted an oil embargo on Japan, which led to them making decision, rash decisions because either they expanded um, – into Southeast Asia where they had more oil resources and rubber or they crumbled as, as an empire because they weren't doing well in their invasion in China. So I don't know. I just, I, I really yeah, hope yeah, I'm wrong. There's a, well, I mean, I think you're probably right in the sense that this is clearly an impetus to just ramp up like defense industrial production overall in the, in the, that sector. Um, there was a wall street journal article that you might've seen from uh, the 28th where they're reporting on the uh, difficulty in replenishing the American supplies of, as you mentioned, these 
uh, javelin missiles and stinger missiles, which hadn't been in steady production um, because they're not often used by the U.S. on the battlefield in its theaters. Um, and so they don't really have the uh, capacity, apparently, to uh, restock the supplies that have been shipped off to Ukraine. And uh, so, you know, we're only in the beginnings now of apparently Congress fashioning some suit, some new legislative response whereby that capacity is going to be uh, expanded. Um, you know, and the, the, according to the Wall Street Journal, it also has to do with certain supply chain issues with semiconductors and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, longer ter- but longer term, it does seem like they are clearly uh, gearing up for the ability to uh, significantly expand the output of this uh, weaponry for uh, protracted uh, warfare, potentially. And you know, that would be consistent with this new Lend-Lease program uh, being in effect because in order to have this constant flow of weaponry to Ukraine, uh, the U.S. needs to also probably, at least according to the, the reports around the diminishing supply of uh, its own Javelin missiles and Stinger missiles, it's going to have to uh, spend more money on its own domestic production. Uh, and that's a, so that's a double uh, whammy in terms of the profit potential for the defense companies. Um, so yeah, I mean that's uh, that seems like that's in in the works, and everybody seems totally down with it. Um, <laughs> even even de- even Democrats who like you know in 2020 in the primaries they were all talking about how they wanted to, you know, they're all making the basically standard uh, point about how we need to you know recalibrate spending away from the military and go to more social causes or whatever, you know, healthcare and higher education, whatever else. And, you know, now they're all apparently defense spending is back in. I haven't seen pretty much anybody in the quote progressive sphere really object all that much at all to uh, this hike in defense spending, not, not including not just in the, budget proposal that Biden put forward in March to uh, which had the highest price tag ever for for a Pentagon budget. But again, these these new these moves to just expand the production capacity overall, um, which is probably could probably require a supplemental funding bills at some point, you know, similar to what was done to fund. Like the wars in the war in Iraq, where that didn't come out, that didn't come out of the, the the regular defense budget. Those were supplementary standalone bills, uh, for the most part, uh, as I recall. Yeah. So, we're, um, yeah. We're giving so much money to Ukraine, I mean, I don't. I mean, it's it's. I don't think that's going to be. It's going to be debt for them. I'm assuming, right? Like thirty three billion. Like that's not just going to come out of American taxpayers. That's going to be thrown onto the Ukrainian books i think i would assume but uh yeah i mean who knows but yeah i mean who knows how they're going to organize this program maybe they'll for they'll forgive the debt down the line as because we have to continue standing with ukraine you know i mean who knows um and the taxpayers will be on the hook Um, yeah but yeah it is interesting to think about too in terms of you know the the lend lease act in world war ii did bring the united states out of the depression that it was in, it wasn't really the New Deal policies that FDR did that actually achieved, you know, the standard of living we had after the Second World War. It was, it was 
the amount of industrialization we went through because the United States Army, I think, prior to World War II was only, I think it was a, a volunteer force around 100,000 people. And we really had to ramp things up to get it to the point where we were able to, you know, go overseas. And I mean, minus the Navy, of course, because the United States has always had a very, very strong Navy. But yeah, it's interesting to think <laughs> in those points. But yeah, hopefully, I mean, I would like to come out on top, but also not see a bunch of people die, which I don't know if that's an option at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks as always, Greg. Mm-hmm. Let's go to uh, next caller who has hashtag no war as his or her name. Hello, Michael. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, okay. Are you are you still in Eurolands? Are you back in, <laughs> in Dollarland? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm in uh, Poundland, so I'm in London. Poundland. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I'm uh, I'm going back to the good old USA tomorrow. So that would be the this is the tail end of my international journey. Do you unrelated? Do you have to wear a mask on that flight? Do you know? <laughs> Uh, I would think not because it's a flight headed to the U.S., you know, and they rescinded that requirement, right? Uh, but I don't know for sure. Uh, I think I'll probably have to wear it in the airport still in uh, in Heathrow. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I'll be keen to find out that little fact. It's an interesting little thing going on, the fighting. I know they had, like, nerd prom last night, and they didn't, uh, didn't have to have uh, masks on for that. But they, you know. Yeah, I know. I know United okay. I, United United Airlines, which is the one that I use, uh, put out a statement like within an hour or something of that judicial order, saying that they would now drop the mask uh, right. requirement. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and you know, the only the only uh, issue would be whether it's, there's something to do with like UK regulations that would require it. But I kind of doubt it given again that it's you know once you're on board you're kind of within the jurisdiction of the country that you're heading to i think yeah i think so too um hey when i saw the um the title for your call in today you know the first thing i thought of and i agreed with if not most all or all if not most of your monologue But the first thing I thought of was the tweet I saw this morning from Glenn Greenwald uh, showing an interview between Chomsky and some gentleman who I'm not familiar with. And yeah, yeah, I saw this. Chomsky elaborates on one U.S. statesman who uh, has advocated for a reasonable solution to this and then says it's Donald Trump, which is really interesting after the way Chomsky chastise people to vote for Biden a year and a half ago and and now he's you know and he does go on to say that Trump scares him and and that Trump has some some menacing aspects to him and I completely agree with that you know 2016 Trump had some things that he said that I agree with I didn't vote for him wouldn't vote for him but it, it was always clear to me that a racism is a part of him that I can't ever get behind. His father was a racist. He knows racism and it's just something that's like part of him. That's the whole birth certificate thing with Obama was purely racist period. I don't 
anybody else wants to argue differently. I disagree with you. And, you know, and on top of that, he's an intellectually incurious person and he's frankly intellectually lazy as well. Talked about draining the swamp. And so it's interesting to see Chomsky talk about, talking that way about Trump after all the things he said about Trump over the last, especially a year and a half or two years. Well, I think he's, I think he said that about Trump because Chomsky's synopsis was pretty much correct in that the one dopey little statement that Trump put out, I, I looked it up after I saw that Chomsky video. Um, the one thing that Trump said on April, I think 18th, was that, you know, he basically said it's ridiculous that Ukraine and Russia aren't doing any kind of negotiating at all. They we every, they should negotiate before everybody ends up dead. You know, that, that's basically what he said. And I, I think that's pretty much how exactly he ended the statement. So it's not like a really uh, complex proposal for some kind of negotiated solution well, right it was, was it was just it was just him saying look let's actually have some negotiation and as as sort of um kind of uh, amateurish as that statement was or or as a uh, simple as it was it really does seem to be the case that he's the only person of, of his stature making that point right now at least in the u.s and uk well the um, other statement yeah. i recall and it wasn't it wasn't reported out as an audio clip or anything. It's reported off of some journalist uh, reporting what happened in a donor dinner or something a few weeks into the Ukraine-Russia situation. But him saying, we should just paint Chinese flags on the side of our F-22s and go bomb Russia and get Russia and China to start fighting each other when they say, no, that was your F-22s. We just put our hands in there and say, it wasn't us. Kind of shaggy defense. It wasn't me, you know, which is classic Trump. Like, he, he's... Yeah, and the, and the other thing, and the other, and the other it, thing, but, the other thing, the other thing was Trump is yes, he did put out that one statement on uh, April eighteenth. Uh, let, let me just look it up, just because I think I should, I should actually read aloud this statement just so I have it because of course i get these save america statements that you know he now have taken the place of his uh while you're looking that twitter up, which I'm may curious. which may get reinstated so maybe we can be done with these statements while you're i hope so um while you're looking that up i'm curious like in the states there's so many like ukraine flags flying on people's front porches ukraine flags on you know bumper stickers uh you know, obviously in, in Twitter profiles and stuff, are you seeing the same thing in Europe? And do you remember a time where like it's escalated, where there's been a military situation between countries that aren't the U S where there's been this kind of blind support instantly, like at the snap of a finger for one country. Oh, well in London, the Ukrainian flags are everywhere. Um, they, 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 they might, it might be even more, I haven't been to DC since the war broke out or, uh, even New York actually. So I, I don't know from firsthand experience, but in London there, the flags are all over the place. I mean, you have, oh, yeah, you, tweeted you have that train uh, station. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, that I mean, I'm still looking ago. into that because I can't get a hard answer from the P the uh, the ad firm that apparently placed those ads as to who paid for them or how much they cost. And this is some of the pro- most expensive advertising real estate in the world. That was the where those ads were in the London Bridge Station, um, and they were also in Times Square the following day. So I, they, then they're being bizarrely cagey about providing any information that affects so I'm, I'm still looking into it um but uh, yeah i mean there there are flags everywhere i mean the, the, i'm in the part of uh london called greenwich and there's like this flea market where if you uh walk down the street there are <laughs> there are um uh several ukraine flags and just i think one uh, union jack you know, flag and then the England flag, but the uh, <laughs> I think there are probably more Ukraine flags right now in London than British flags. That's um, amazing. Last yeah. time I was in London was for was like twenty over twenty years ago for the the Queen's Jubilee, and it was only Union Jack. Really? You went to the you went to London specifically for the Queen's Jubilee. No, I didn't. I, I it aligned with when I ended up in London. I did not intentionally. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were just such a royal family official that you had to make the trip. I'm the opposite side. I was staying with some family friends and we were like, they were watching it and we were just, you know, our family, Yusuf Samad, family friend, was yelling at the TV screen talking about how yeah. terrible the queen is. I noticed I'll even see people walking around with like Ukraine flag pins on their lapels and. Oh, my God. Um, you know, when you go and make a uh, purchase at a supermarket, they'll have at the kiosk uh, an option to automatically give a certain portion of your bill to some Ukraine charity, of course, which I mean, who knows what's being done exactly with yeah. those monies. I'm sure some has been done go? for – has been done. Yeah, I'm sure, I, I'm sure some stuff. have been used for, for, uh, for reasonable purposes, but they never audit these things. And then I actually asked the – charity camp like uh, organizer for an explanation as to what the funds are doing and it was like the vaguest response ever i mean i haven't reported this yet i'm probably gonna put it on a sub stack soon so you know subscribe but um but yeah it's like that they, they don't they, they're never they, they never forensically uh, audited these these charities and who knows how much overhead they have or how much goes to executive compensation or whatever oh, yeah, um but yeah but but but, but but the are making six figures yeah and also there's um there's a Ukraine flag. I mean, because I went to this pro, left-wing pro-war demonstration a few weeks ago, and there was a Ukraine flag. Fla- it was it was in Whitehall, so like the governmental corridor, and uh, it was right across the street from the Home Office, so like where Boris Johnson's ministers assemble and such. And the the, the flag flying atop the not the Home Office, sorry, the Cabinet Office, the Cabinet Office. The flag flying atop the Cabinet Office is a Ukraine flag. It's not the British flag. It's the Ukraine flag. Um, it's amazing. I was even in San when I when I was in France uh, last weekend at the town hall building in Saint Denis, which is a very racially mixed area, uh, you know, full of people from North Africa and, and so on and so forth. Um, at the city hall building where the actual voting was taking place in the presidential election, <laughs> there was a giant Ukraine flag uh, flying on uh, in front of the the building and. Apparently, this didn't violate whatever regulation may or may not govern political slogans at polling places, right? Which is what we have more or less in the U.S., although it varies. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's all over the place. I, I think it's probably the most pronounced in um, in London. Although I saw it in Brussels too, uh, and um, and also in Poland. So so yeah, I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's the craziest in my life. I think we're roughly the same age, late thirties. I think you're around my age. And, uh, I'm still early thirties, just so you know. All right, let's Sorry. let's get let's get that straight. I apologize. <laughs> Um, anyway, I've never seen anything like this where all these flags are everywhere in support of a country that's being bombed by another country. I just never, I've never seen it. It's like the propaganda happens so quick and all these people buying the flags. I mean, the Ukraine flag is like, that's a good business to be in right now. Yeah. Well, the, the Daily Express newspaper, which is this like you know conservative leaning uh, tabloid newspaper in in uh, London, has as like a semi permanent fixture of its cover in the top left corner a waving Ukraine flag, like right next to the name Daily Express. Jesus! <laughs> so yeah, it's it's, uh, it's insane. It's pretty amazing. It's insane. Yeah. Did you get that Trump statement? Did you pull it up? Oh, yes, yes, I did pull it up. Um, okay, here, so here's a statement. Here's a statement that is so radical and so, uh, 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 you know, uh, against the grain that Chomsky has to make a special effort to praise it and to call it statesmanlike. <laughs> that, that's, how, that's how little <laughs> interest there is within the rest of the Western, quote-unquote, leadership to say anything even resembling this. Okay, here's a statement. Yeah, it was April 18th. Quote, it doesn't make sense that Russia and Ukraine aren't sitting down and working out some kind of an agreement. If they don't do it soon, there will be nothing left but death, destruction, and carnage. There is a war that never should have happened, but it did. The solution can never be as good as it would have been before the shooting started, but there is a solution. And it should be figured out now, not later, when everyone will be dead. Okay, so that's Trump's call for talks or diplomacy or something. Again, it's not like he's presenting some sort of uh, enlightened uh, peace deal proposal, uh, but as kind of uh, crude and <laughs> and uh, I mean simplistic as that statement is, it's all we've got. And so it even caused uh, no Trump Chomsky to sing Trump's appraises at least indirectly. You know, there's zero elected members in the Democratic Party that sound like that. Zero. Yeah, no, none. Because they would be no called progressive, no squad member, no. Well, because they would be called, Bernie, no they would row. be accused of being in line with Trump, and therefore in line with the right wing Kremlin or disinformation network, or in line with Putin. Well, yeah, because, I mean, but that goes that goes hand in hand, right? So, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. All right, well, All uh, right. thank you, sir. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Talk to you later, Johnny. You are up. Hello, Mr. Tracy. Um, hey, how are you? You know, I think the, good, good. I'm doing good uh, for this Sunday. You know, the task before us is outrageously enormous. And I got to give credit to the think tank because they have really been thinking hard on this. So I want to speak in broad terms. I think that the, when we ask the question, is the far right anti-war? I think that's part of a really good um, example of how it is that the far or the think tank, the uh, neoliberals have been so successful 
in uh, doing what you were talking about earlier, making it confusing to where, well, wait a minute, you know, is it the left anti-war? Is it right anti-war? What's going on here? You know, because they're back and forth. But I think uh, the big answer to that really is that it's neoliberalism, which uh, is all about profit. And in economic terms, and maybe not cultural terms, there are differences between the left and right, but in economic terms, they're exactly on the same page. But they have to couch it in such a way that that gives the illusion of the left and the right, you know, but I think most people are starting to catch on uh, in the sense that most people today will tell you there is no left and right. They can't articulate it particularly how that's so, but they recognize it somehow that, you know, economically speaking, you know, am I prospering? Am I able to, you know, uh, uh, have a 40 hour uh, uh, paycheck and, and live? No, I can't, you know, these sort of things. So um, the, uh, the antidote, I think, is even a better example of how successful the think tank has been, and that is in the expression of taxpayer money. I think that the antidote to neoliberalism is a recognition, first of all, that there is such an ideology, and it is ruling the policy of the United States, and now further to the east, pushing Russia, right, uh, pushing to the borders of Russia. And that that recognition, that acknowledgement of, of what it is, I find surprising that most people, if you ask them what is neoliberalism, and they'll, they'll be a, a shorter words. They won't know what it is, right? That's how successful and how clever they've been uh, in, uh, in, 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 in creating policies and, you know, moving forward with, uh, with, this, uh, with, with this republic. So the other part of this is the best example, I was getting back to the example, is an understanding of macroeconomics proper. Now, we understand that you can go to real progressives. Now, even though they're progressives, even though they're really left wing, you cannot find a better place to go for the correct information for how uh, sovereign currency, sovereign country, countries who issue their own currency tax and spend. Now, you know, if you're right wing or if you're libertarian or whatever you are, go there for the truth. And if you walk away from seeing that presentation of how macroeconomics works and say to yourself, no, it's different, then you have a problem because they have the academics behind them. And I'll pause there. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, thanks. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're right that the kind of ideological contours of the debate such as it exists around this issue are not at all kind of comprehensible by reference to traditional polls of left versus right, or at least the polls of left, left versus right as, as they would have been understood just in the past maybe 20 years. Um, I think part of that owes to a giant – shift in how the left versus right kind of organized themselves post 2016 where you had at least the kind of popular left liberalism in the US more and more kind of intertwined with the security state apparatus and uh, seeking the same objectives as factions within the security state apparatus so as to counteract Trump. Um, and that really had a lasting effect on the their overall sort of just fundamental principles. Um, and so, yeah, I, mean, I think uh, that was turbocharged. That that evolution was turbocharged during Trump's presidency. We see a continuation 
of it now where it's seen as somehow antithetical to this the, the liberalism or the left to have anything resembling a anti-war position on an issue which really you know in the past would have been right in their wheelhouse to oppose on um on anti-war grounds i mean the, the against being against nuclear like uh, campaigning against nuclear proliferation or uh nuclear war in general or um uh, there was even a time when nuclear power fit into this, right? Was used to be a standard uh, priority amongst kind of the even the left-leaning uh, professional class, and that's totally gone. And now they're uh, they see it, see it as integral to their whole self-conception to to allow you for ever greater militarism and, and escalation. And yeah, it's a it's a it's a market shift, and I think it's been under theorized as to how that worked, and it leaves us with this bizarre situation, which now we're all told that. To be anti-war is to be "quote unquote" far right in most circumstances. Um, so, so, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, so, if I understand you right, you would uh, you would pinpoint the shift right around 2016, and you would say maybe is it true to say that uh, we know that neoliberalism kicked off in the mid 70s by the early 1980s in full force. So, you're saying that if I understand you correctly, the anti-war shifting from the left to the right actually began in 2016 whereas before it was there um i think 2016 was a major accelerant in this trend to kind of reorganize what it means to be left and what it means to be right on foreign policy because what took over as kind of the overriding principle was Either opposing Trump or supporting Trump, right? And so if right. you, and if so, if, if Trump was perceived, which he didn't actually do, but if he was perceived as uh, being antagonistic toward NATO um, and wanting to cut its funding or even withdraw the U.S. from NATO, then it became a left liberal virtue to be stalwart supporters of NATO, right? And you saw stuff like that across the board mm-hmm. and that, that just that just influenced every aspect of American political debate because Trump was this unprecedentedly outsized presence in uh, the lives of, of everyone in, in, a, in a hyper-politicized time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think um, uh, – there might have been some antecedents prior to 2016 that are, are also relevant, but whatever they were, it was uh, turbocharged by by the Trump uh, experience from from 2016 onward. That's sort of a general theory I have about a lot of shifts that have happened in American culture and politics and foreign policies uh, of late. But I think it's very much applicable to why it is that now there's just no remaining vestige of any kind of left-wing anti-war movement at all. And none of the putative left-wing figures in American uh, life right now are at all troubled by this Uh escalating lurch into wide-scale war. In fact, they seem to favor it. So last question. Then you would agree that that was an intentional? Because we know that our thinking is crafted behind propaganda, right? So just as you said. So would you say that that shift, that what you're talking about, was an intentional truth, an intentional thing? Or do you think that, that Trump's just actually smart? Uh, when you say <laughs> it was intentional, I mean, I'm not sure who 
would have had to quote intend it. You know, I think it, it, that's just there was just well, this co- there was just this coalescence of events, and this is how things have planned out. You know, where there's certain like actors who kind of uh, leveraged it for their own self-interested purposes. Yeah, I mean, but um, in terms of like some coordinated structure or even central figure calling the shots, I'm not sure that I would ascribe uh, intention in a neat way there. But um, thanks, thanks, Johnny. Uh, Thank you, sir. All right, uh, Tyler, you are up. Hello, Michael. I'm a big fan of your work. Thanks for uh, for hosting this. Hey, thanks a lot. Um, So... Like an earlier caller, I'm also late 30s. Um, just so for reference, this puts me mid-high school during 9-11 and the Patriot Act, early college when the Iraq war breaks out. Um, and, you know, a big a big Obama supporter because during the Bush years, the far-right pro-war constitution shredding, torturing neocons were, you know, the center of the far-right. And, of course, anyone with any reasonable sense on these issues lined up on the left. And I myself am the, the child of a Vietnam draft dodger and a feminist bra burner back in the 70s. And, you know, of course, that's where I lined up as well. Um, and I do think your point about these kind of rumblings and changings beforehand being accelerated by the Trump movement is, is, is accurate. Um, but in my own perspective, having been at School of the Americas protests in high school and Iraq war protests and Patriot Act protests in college um, and, you know, later on Standing Rock and Ferguson, uh, my, my own experience is one of seeing the left or people who call themselves left during the Obama years and, and again, to your point, accelerated by the Trump movement, um, move increasingly to the right on these foreign policy and uh, war and, and war issues. Right. And it, it, it started in my opinion during the Obama years when you had a movement that was nominally progressive and left. Um, but, but under, under his leadership, they renewed the sunset clauses in the Patriot Act. They expanded the Iraq war. They, uh, started the Libyan conflict and the Syrian conflict and all all these other kind of aggressive neoconservative yeah, foreign then, policy stances that were that were taken during the Obama years. I, I think I think I just wanted right, to add Yemen to that just for the record. Yeah. Of of course, uh, excellent point. Right. I mean, and the the list could go on. Um, but but at this point, my own perspective is that the people who call themselves left or liberal and represent progressive social policies when it comes to domestic issues have moved over the course of the last decade and a half here to a po- to a policy set on foreign policy issues and on the police state, et cetera, that are extreme right, like excessively terrifyingly far, far right. And have become, I guess, institutionalists in their conservatism to the extent that those of us on what we used to call the anti-war left uh, are now referred to by mainstream liberals as the dum-dum left, right? We, we consider ourselves anti-imperialists and are therefore, you know, homeless politically in this, in this current political landscape and uh, have met met with not just counter arguments from people who call themselves liberals, but 
insane conspiracy theories and insults and fear. Uh, and I think that element was introduced during the Trump movement, right? But the idea that the the classical liberals have moved to the right of anyone else, even those who call themselves far right on these foreign policy issues. Personally, I've seen it as a long time coming because I saw Obama as one of the more far right leaders on foreign policy issues in recent memory. And oh, Biden, Biden now is just an extension of that ideology. We've got, you know, to the to, to the point where traditional neoconservatives felt so unwelcome in the Republican Party that they they left during the anti-Trump movement and were welcomed into the Democratic Party, who supposedly, you know, represents liberal thought in America. And now you've got a situation where the people who call themselves liberals are aligning ideologically with Bill Kristol on foreign policy issues. And this is just so insane to me as an anti-war leftist my whole life, right? Um, so I don't necessarily think it's that the far right has become anti-war. I just think that any anti-war sentiment has been so terrifyingly unwelcome in the movement that calls itself left today in America that they, that, that there, there is no anti-war position in either party really. And the, the, those of us who remain in this culture and this landscape and call ourselves anti-imperialists kind of have to line up alongside the libertarians because there's nowhere else to go really. And this, again, I think my, my, my broader point is this is a function of those who call themselves left or liberal moving to extreme right positions on the issues that we're discussing today. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, uh, I think, um, I know people would sort of maybe quibble with you just in a semantic respect because they would say that, look, there's nothing inherently far – there's inherently right-wing about supporting military intervention, right? It's like liberals and neoconservatives and others, nationalists, have had various reasons over the years to support this or that intervention and then their ideological – priorities get imbued onto that invention but it's not like intrinsic to the notion of military inter intervention for it to be right wing per se um and so 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 for example thing. so for example like in, in 1999 the, the uh intervention in kosovo um was also uh, to the extent that it was opposed in congress it was mostly by republicans um, and that's because they viewed the intervention, I guess, as, uh, in furtherance of certain liberal ends, at least liberal liberalism as it was then embodied by Bill Clinton. Um, but you know, they didn't have any inherent problem with military intervention per se. So I guess there's a, there's a kind of, um, like a fungibility there that maybe isn't as well appreciated as it could be as to whose ideological ends can be served by uh, military intervention. Hence this like radical flux of who, who is seen as anti-war and who isn't. Um, 
I don't know if that if that makes sense, but I I think I I think I largely agree with the the theory that you spelled out absent that um semantic point. Um yeah, but I I think uh I mean, you're probably right that there are some there were some early rumblings of it, early rumblings of it during the Obama presidency, but even during like the Libya intervention or the Syria intervention um uh or Yemen like there, there was progressive, quote unquote, pushback to what Obama was doing. It wasn't, you know, probably loud enough to make any difference, really. But it wasn't as, as if like the hardcore left wing activists were really pro bombing Yemen, right? Uh, whereas today, there's like no left wing prerogative at all to oppose the current policy. So I think there's something, something sort of shifted. Um, and, and definitely, maybe the most pronounced shift is, is mainstream liberalism. Like, in, like Obama and Hillary Clinton were the ones who wanted a Russian reset, right, in 2010 to kind of, you know, usher in some sort of detente with uh, Medvedev then, who was the, the, the president. But, you know, Putin was still in power. He was the prime minister. He was seen to somewhat call the shots, right? Um, and uh, now that's just totally, that would be totally untenable. That would be unthinkable. To even propose now, right? Um, and you see that that uh, that change reflected in the media, like the the opponents of. I, I remember following the debate around the New Start Treaty in 2010, which uh, happened in in accordance with this reset, and uh, all the all the people who oppose the policy in Congress uh, were seemingly uh, Republicans. I mean, you know, John McCain led the opposition to that uh, in the Senate, for example, right? Um, and now you, there would just be no Democratic constituency for anything resembling that mentality that led to the New START Treaty in 2010 at all. I mean, that the New START Treaty didn't seem to have, didn't seem to work very well because, you know, Russian relations... And uh, Russian-U.S. relations ended up cratering not long after anyway. Um, but now there's not even an appetite for it or there's not even any, a constituency for it within the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And you see this reflected in the media as well. I was, yesterday I was talking about how uh, Rolling Stone, which is just mostly just sort of a brand now, um, but they still have a publication, right? Um, They've converted into the latest clearinghouse for this kind of liberal neocon uh, synthesis uh, under the editorship of this guy, Noah Shackman, who was poached from the Daily Beast, uh, which he had also made into a tabloid of uh, liberal uh, neocon sort of uh, agitation. Um, And so uh, today, uh, Rolling Stone runs screeds from the most psychotic liars who are uh, just pro-war, uh, basically propagandists, um, doing supposed journalism, and that's just no, totally normal now. And you know they're they're using their headlines to attack anybody who questions NATO, and it's just you know this is the you know beatnik or you know uh, hippie Rolling Stone, basically just singing from the same choir book as the the all the standard neocon outfits um so yeah there's a there's a huge i think the shift is probably the most pronounced within kind of mainstream left liberalism but even amongst like the more progressives and left uh sections of the coalition if you want to call it that 
I, I think a lot a lot has changed um, that doesn't strike me as very reminiscent of what I can recall the state of things being during the uh, the Obama presidency. Otherwise, uh, though, I think I think your theory, I think your theory has uh, has merit. Yeah, well, I I, I, w- I would say that 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 shift at Rolling Stone is you know further reflected by real journalists like Taibbi leaving there, for example. Yeah. Um, and I would, I, I, I guess I would say that, you know, one 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 reason that I saw the militarism couched in the politics of the traditional right is that during during my own political evolution, right, there's the 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 people pushing for militarism and interventionism were right wing figures by and large. And the idea that, you know, there's been some Republican opposition to some interventionism here here and along the years once in a while is I, 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 I don't know that 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 to me doesn't doesn't shake the idea that militarism is a and, and interventionism is a right wing idea just because it's been the right you know, pushing that for most of my political awareness. Um, and, and I do think that, that rhetorically modern liberals are not swayed by the idea that these interventions that they are now supporting are a bad idea on the basic grounds of it. But I do find in my discussions with them that they are very resistant to the idea that anything that they are proposing could be considered right or far right. And so I think just semantically and rhetorically, it's good for those of us on the anti-imperialist side of things, which does still exist. I think, you know, Jimmy Dore has a massive following, for example, right? Like, um, I, I do I do think there is still a left anti-imperialistic cultural politic in the country it's just we have been so thoroughly excised from the democratic party that you know claims to represent people who call themselves liberal um i i but 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 again my 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 point is that rhetorically and semantically arguing against imperialism is far more effective uh when you align those policies with the traditional right wing. Um, I just, I just think you make much more headway as a, as an anti-imperialist from an argumentative standpoint uh, when you, when you couch it in those terms. So I think that's a lesson for all of us in the left cultural commentary space and, uh, and I'll sign off there. Thanks. Yep. All right. Thanks Tyler. Okay. uh, Let's go to uh, Steven last caller. All right. Hey Mike, hope you're not too sick of my calls yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I will never tire. All right. So um, I don't know that I see a semantic basis for far right, even preceding uh, 2016. Um, I think what it is, and probably what it always has been, relates more to voting blocks and turning politics into kind of an observational sport. You know, you root for your team, go team blue, go team red, um, and. I'd probably go a step further and say that there's not really an organic basis for the terms. If there were an organic basis, I think the terms right and left would naturally align with popular opinion, which I don't think I see. There is a basis, though, for seeing it as a managed term, specifically when like one side or the other of the uniparty use it as a, as a pejorative slur against their political opponents. Like, oh, that's so right wing, so left wing, whatever. So I guess I'd offer kind of an alternative hypothesis that 
it really more aligns to like kind of a bonsai tree, right? Is it's constantly cultivated the terms right and left so that there's never really a populist axis that can push a mandate with 80 or 90% support. So I kind of see it just as a way to divide people um, so that they aren't able to, you know, organize along class lines or, you know, any sort of other useful political, uh, you know, <laughs> access. And uh, I'd say yeah, I, I, I think I'm sorry. Go ahead. But yeah, go ahead. You first. Um, no, you, you go ahead. Sorry, there was a. I think you either you or I cut out briefly. Just finish your thought. Oh yeah. So yeah, essentially, I, I, I feel like it's almost designed and kind of managed the parties, right, uh, so that they can keep kind of a rotating villain uh, and you never, you know, it's, it's, it's all about voting blocks and preventing um, people from naturally or organically selecting the, the groups that they want to freely identify with or associate with. Yeah, I, I think um, there definitely is, if you want to use this term of ruling class interest in maintaining this left-right dichotomy as kind of the operating principle of America, how Americans organize their identities because it uh, prevents the uh, replacement of it with, as you suggested, maybe an axis of populist versus uh, non-populist or, uh, you know, up versus down rather than left versus right. I mean, that, that, this is an idea that was, I can recall being in currency, maybe more in the early, uh, 2010s. I know the, uh, Occupy kind of tried to popularize certain aspects of that kind of just, uh, reorientation of the American kind of ideological uh, landscape away from, you know, just, uh, you know, petty squabbling between people who identify as right or versus left toward, you know, let's marshal our energies toward those who actually command economic power in society. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it clearly is a, a sound uh, dividing mechanism. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people do seem to really care a whole lot about like these cultural issues and stuff. Um, and those are the, the types of issues which are probably going to be inevitably, uh, sorted through this uh, more kind of, uh, tr traditional and maybe even tedious, uh, left, right axis. Um, because, you know, those who want to change the status quo in favor of progress, are always going to be, I guess, probably more associated with the left and those who don't like that change or want to stop it or maybe want to go back even further um, are going to be just perceived as uh, on, on the right. And that maybe that's just sort of, sort of natural yeah. uh, progression insofar, of politics. Yeah. Yeah. Insofar as there is any definition, I, I tend to agree with you. But then, you know, you, you have partisans and propagandists coming out and labeling like Russell Brand, right, as an extreme right winger. And it just, <laughs> that does not fit the bill of what I think anyone would define as that. Um, oh, exactly. So like, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So when the words just become squishy like that and lack any sort of concrete definition at all, I, I just, I don't see the point of clinging to that, except 
you know, in the context of like, again, politics is this observational thing that people just root for and don't actively participate. Yeah. Because w- when you think about social change, that's where it all happens is, is, is people, you know, not voting, but actually getting involved in local communities, organizing all that stuff uh, insofar as that's actually, you know, civil disobedience and, and things along those lines. I don't know that I see the electoral portion as really useful. Well, the purpose it served in the case that I initially brought up, which has sort of prompted my raising of this topic with Marine Le Pen in France, was that, you know, in terms of portraying who she was for Western audiences and portraying the significance of her participation in this election for audiences in the U.S. or wherever that would not be familiar with that familiar with France was just to append far right onto her name whenever she was referenced so as to just kind of connote that she was just bad. So far right was just meant to be synonymous with that. They couldn't really articulate or they didn't even try really to really to articulate why it was that she was far right. And yeah, again, I, I understand the history of her party and stuff and why there is reasonable grounds to call certain of her positions far right. That's not really what I'm even talking about. I'm talking about why there was this reflexive shorthand descriptor attached to her constantly at every headline uh, about this uh, recent French election. It was because she was wanted, she, the, the media wanted just an easy way to show her to be bad um, and far right. In the American political lexicon is now goes hand in hand with just bad. That's what it is. And part of that badness is about her supposedly not <laughs> wanting to be aggressive enough in committing the French military to total battlefield victory in Ukraine, uh, which is sort of hilarious because, again, as we sort of been over uh, t- 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that would have been seen as the maybe a far left position, right? So, yeah, I mean, the arbitrariness of these labels and how easily they can be just totally shorn of their previous meaning and then placed into a totally different context given whatever political exigencies have arisen. It shows you, yeah, they are just used as sort of a discursive tactic most of the time and don't really signify uh, anything uh, substantive. Semantically extending right wing and left wing as it pertains to U.S. politics and kind of using that as again a pejorative slur uh, is even less useful semantically in re- in reference to foreign or, or you know particularly European kind of environments with you know they pluralistic democracies presumptively right uh, and like you know the Green Party for instance is not exactly considered uh, left wing by you know any any stretch of the definition so like yeah I, I, I'd say. Yeah, that, that's very interesting to me, though. Uh, all right. Uh, well, thanks, Stephen. And now let's go to uh, Suze, who uh, just snuck in at the last minute. Hello, Suze. Uh, Suze, I cannot hear you right now. I don't know if you can, can you hear me now? change... Yeah, now I can hear you. Yep. Okay, cool. Uh, Yeah, so I guess just to touch a little bit on, you know, the left versus right thing, um, you know, it does really seem like it's a much more fundamental realignment than just the anti-war stuff. Like, um, I mean, the only defenders of free speech right now are on the right. 
uh, in politics. And the only defenders of any, you know, uh, uh, accountability and transparency from government agencies are on the right, like as we can see through all this stuff with COVID. Um, and Democratic voters, left wing, who purportedly, you know, you know, those of us on the left, like socialist or communist, like myself, would like not even consider Democrats to be on the left, really. But, uh, um, but you know, they consider themselves that. So they're the ones that support the CIA, the FBI. I know that Glenn Greenwald always posts those polls showing that, which is pretty terrifying. Um, so. It's not. It's definitely not a good position to be in, um, you know, when th this realignment is happening, and the only only people that are defending those basic civil liter liberties are also, you know, to the right on on lots of social issues. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> you may have seen this, but Elon Musk posted this chart slash drawing a few days ago, which you know, basically has the stick figure who exists on the center left of this spectrum in 2008. And then today in 2022, the left has gone so far left that now the stick figure has ended up on the center right or something like that. Right. And I think, uh, it's probably, you know, it's a drawing. So of course it's an oversimplification, but I also think that the larger meaning that's, a, a, a construed from that is also a bit oversimplified because it really only applies to these social issues where you have people in 2008 who might have just been kind of like, okay, let's do gay marriage. Now they're all like in the most extreme gender identity uh, clubs and you know they're, they're wanting to do away with the gender binary and on and on and on. So yeah, I mean, there has been a shift there uh, on the, the, the social uh, issues in particular, at least on the putative left. Um, but in other respects, as you sort of mentioned with this, this FBI, uh, data, which again, yeah, does repeatedly come up where, uh, Democrats were sort of trained to love the security state as a bulwark against Trump. And, you know, there are always going to be long lasting, uh, implications of that, that training. Uh, one of which appears to be now that they're fully on board with the national security state's projects here in Ukraine. Um, uh, but uh, I was going to say, you know, although the, the the overall message might be that Elon Musk and the cartoon drawer were trying to get across might be oversimplified, but I mean, there is something to be said that somebody, I mean, forget that it's Elon Musk per se, right? Somebody of his general orientation who supported Obama in 2008 th thought that they were fairly moderate, maybe left-leaning, but not extreme. It is sort of notable that those types of people are now the ones who today who are castigated as horrible reactionaries. And I mean, that is a significant development. I'm not defending them one way or another or saying that they're wrong or right to be uh, castigated. Uh, but it, just stopping the shift is indicative of something that's happened to the nature of American um, political kind of self conception um and so it hasn't been the shift hasn't been anything on economic issues we aren't any closer to no. achieving like left economic issues and but yet all the people that promote those are now considered uh who's stuck by those like jimmy Dore, like you know taibi to some extent and greenwald those are now like 
you know, supposedly we're supposed to think the the far parts of the far right now, or they've been the ones that go right. Um, I would say yes and no to that. I mean, I do think that the Bernie Sanders campaigns did popularize a different kind of economic uh, focused politics among a certain cohort. So, you know, so socialism became destigmatized uh, de amongst that group. Um, you know, so uh, the acceptance of socialism within that, within this sort of younger cohort in 2022 versus uh, I don't know, 2012 has, has really shifted. So, you know, whether that translates to policy is another question, but just like discursively, I do think there has been a shift in that area. Maybe it's just sort of superficial and maybe a lot of it's just social posturing and whatnot. I think a lot of it is. It's just I, that. I, I but so but um, Did yeah. you see that one article about, uh, by some neocon think tank that was like, you know, the U.S. should go towards democratic socialism to counter China? Like, <laughs> no, I missed. I gotta look that up. Yeah, yeah. I, maybe uh, I'll like tweet it at you or something because I think you're gonna. Well, that it. I mean that that might be the only way that the U.S. would actually transition to democratic socialism if it were to exactly. combat some foreign enemy. So maybe that would work. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Well. Um, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Have a good night. Thanks. Thanks, Suze. All right. Thanks everybody for uh, tuning in this uh, afternoon. Um, gonna be back in the. Good old USA uh, tomorrow. So uh, hopefully we'll have a more of an America-centric series of call-in chats going forward. And I'll have them at times where maybe more people are able to tune in. Although I, I kind of do like this sort of weekend afternoon time, although it's you know, 6.30 here. All right, uh, that'll do it. Bye-bye, everybody. Cheerio.